Welcome to the Augustine Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. This is a podcast featuring conversations about the life and thought of St. Augustine of Hippo. Each episode features an interview with a different guest, usually on to talk about their own work that concerns Augustine, his writing, his thought, and his life. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Dr. Mary M. Keyes. Dr. Keyes is an associate professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Keyes holds a BA from Boston College and an MA and PhD from the University of Toronto. Her research interests span a spectrum of political theory with special focuses in Christianity, ethics, and political thought. Her work includes articles and chapters in the American Journal of Political Science, the History of Political Thought, Perspectives on Political Science, and the Cambridge Companion to Augustine City of God. She's held various fellowships, including an NEH fellowship supporting her ongoing research project on humility, modernity, and the science of politics. She's been a visiting scholar at Harvard University and the University of Chicago. She is the author of Aquinas, Aristotle, and the Promise of the Common Good, and importantly for our conversation today, Pride, Politics, and Humility in Augustine City of God which offers a new book-length study of pride and humility in Augustine's political thought. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mary M. Keyes. A quick comment on today's episode. We had some internet problems while we were talking, and as a result, about the last five minutes didn't save properly, so the episode ends pretty abruptly. Most of the conversation is still there, and I really enjoyed getting to sit down and talk with Professor Keyes. I hope you enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. Dr. Keyes, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's just jump right in. Tell me about you and your work. What are you doing now? Where are you, genuinely, geographically? So geographically, I'm at at my home institution. I'm not on campus at the moment, so I'm in South Bend, Indiana, uh, which is contiguous with Notre Dame, Indiana, which is Uh. basically the University of Notre Dame's campus. So, uh, and this is, uh, yeah, this has been my my first job, and and uh, I've been here since since I was a visiting instructor while I was working on my dissertation uh, a long time ago. So Seriously. yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I didn't realize you came straight from the dissertation to Notre Dame. I I did. I was very fortunate. I, I uh, Notre Dame was looking for someone to teach Christian political thought around the time that I was just really getting going working on a dissertation on Thomas Aquinas' thought on the common good. And I was at the University of Toronto in the political science department. So I just, I was in the right place at the right time. It's very fortunate and uh, was invited to come teach for a semester. And uh, then say maybe two two years later, they had a t- more or less, there's a tenure track opening. And I was fortunate to get it. So I've, yeah, and I'd love, I, I love Notre Dame. It's, it's a wonderful place. So I've Great. been happy here. And yeah, this is where I sit now. <laughs> so, um, yes. Good, good. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. How did you get to political science, Thomas, Augustine? Yeah, sort of just give me your intellectual journey. Because I first came to your work through, through that book on the common good when I was doing my master's. So this is obviously a less Thomistic book, but. Yeah, tell me about your journey. How'd you get to Notre Dame? How'd you get to this book intellectually? Uh, what have you terrific. done so far? Yeah. Okay, terrific. Sure. So I, um, 
Yeah, I, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, a child of Midwestern parents, so I've uh, segued nicely into life in Indiana, but grew up in D.C. and the Maryland suburbs. And I think what really, my, my family was very interested in politics. Uh, my parents uh, were, yeah, just wonderful and, and both interested in politics and also very committed to liberal education and uh, continuing their own and in their own study and also uh, encouraging me and, and my sister and ours. So uh, so I grew up with that that background. And then I uh, just, I think in terms of what got me interested in political science per se, I think two things maybe. I think uh, my dad was involved in the civil rights movement uh, as a civil servant and um, things like equal housing and, and uh, civil rights code um, enforcement and issues like that. So that was an issue that was really important for me also. And uh, then also the, I grew up in during the Cold War and that I think looking at uh, US-Soviet relations, but more deeply questions of religious freedom, human rights uh, at home, but maybe especially behind uh, what, you know, the Iron Curtain or in the Soviet bloc and movements like Solidarity in Poland, uh, uh, some of the nonviolent uh, revolutions in uh, in the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia at the time or whatnot. Those were those are also really inspirational for me mm. um, and the dissidents. Um, so those I think I was just really passionate about ethics and politics and uh, places where they they intersection intersected or their interrelation was very obvious to me and and seemed very important. These are just a couple examples, but they were they were key. So. I went to my do my undergrad at Boston College, uh, looking for a very good at liberal arts education and thinking I wanted to go into journalism, political journalism, mm -hmm. probably covering the Kremlin for the New York Times was my dream job uh, growing at that stage or working in foreign affairs, um, you know, probably. Uh, so, yeah, so I uh, I enrolled in a political science major and a, a great books minor. I was like a program more than a minor at Boston College. And my first political science course, which didn't sound like it was gonna be very exciting. It was called something like Fundamental Concepts in Political Science. Uh, and I imagine a big, thick, boring textbook somehow. There's very little description of the course, but it was required of major. So I enrolled, it was gonna be a full year course. And to my delight, uh, it was team taught by a professor of classical Greek political theory and a public policy and American political thought professor, uh, and who are very good friends, very different in their approaches to some things, but you know an, enough theoretical uh, and political overlap that it was it, it worked. And our textbook was Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War <laughs> for the first semester. So that that really got me that really got me started, um, and. By the time I was finishing up my, I'd say maybe by my my third year, my junior year in college, I, I was loving being in the university environment. And I thought, okay, maybe I should think about switching gears a little bit and and becoming um, becoming a, a professor and, and focusing on political theory more than say Soviet politics at the time, or which would have been another path I might've taken. Um, so yeah, so I started taking some ancient Greek and I, I love the Greeks. I love Plato and I also, I, I found Aristotle very difficult, but also rewarding um, and Thucydides. So I thought, okay, well, let's let's get some Greek under my belt for the last couple of years and then apply to grad programs. And uh, so I went to Toronto thinking that I would focus 
on uh, doing my PhD focusing on one of the ancient Greek thinkers or possibly an early modern thinker like Locke, who is also a, a strong interest. Um, and um, But yeah, as, as I went through the grad program, I was more and more the, the questions on my mind and where I thought I might have a contribution to make were at the intersection of Christianity and political thought. So, or the, um, the uh, ethical and political thought of some of the big thinkers in the Christian intellectual tradition. Um, so I went around starting to knock on doors, trying to find there wasn't there weren't courses in political theory that delved into those areas. So mm. I got some some recommendations from my advisor and went around to other units knocking on doors, asking for a directed readings, which was I now know what kind of ass that was. I was very lucky. I found yeah. a, kind, a kind soul who was a, a very, very good professor, um, Edward Sinan, who took me on for a whole year reading The City of God. That was actually my uh, introduction. And then I decided to write, I wanted to learn Aquinas as well, and I knew it would not be easy. So I did some readings and wrote a paper on some Neo-Thomas thought and decided, okay, I'm, even though it's, it's going to be a stretch and it will be more difficult, instead of writing on Augustine, I want to do my dissertation on Aquinas. Um, so to learn his thought more deeply. So, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how, um, that's how it began, you know. Yeah, good. I will say it is a big ask, uh, but that's how I came across your work was knocking on professors' doors, asking for reading lists uh, for sort of political theology or uh, medieval politics texts. And that's how I got your, your book. So did that Aristotle Aquinas and the Promise of the Common Good? That's the title, right? Yes, that's okay, the title. It's been a couple good years. memory. That's yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Did that come out of your dissertation or was that a, a secondary project? It came out of my dissertation. I think in a lot a of thick ways, a book. It came out of a dissertation. Well, it it took it took many years. So I yeah. think it, it came out of the dissertation, uh, and it's in many ways the same core project. But I think it's uh, a quantum with all its you know all its flaws, like all things human. But it uh it's I think a kind of a quantum leap beyond the dissertation itself. Um, at least at least um, in my sort of understanding and in the work I was able to do. So. Um, one of my colleagues at Notre Dame, Michael Zucker, kindly read my dissertation when I was uh, new on the tenure track or early on the tenure track. And he he pointed out, he said, Mary, like, it seems that there's a strong strand of arguing that in some ways, a quant which is pretty countercultural in some political theory circles, that in some ways Aquinas' thought is better than Aristotle's uh, on the relation between personal good and common good, for example. And if that's true, why don't you bring it out more and explore it more directly? Mm-hmm. And I thought about it and I thought, yeah, he's right. That, that's absolutely true. And so uh, that was that was one aspect that I think I uh, did yeah, quite a bit of work on. And, and there are several new chapters that weren't in the dissertation. So I'm probably the one that I learned the most from and enjoyed working on the most. That was post-dissertation work. Uh, led directly to the the Augustine books. Maybe I, I could tell you a little bit about that chapter if you'd like. Please do. Yeah. Okay. So that chapter was on uh, comparing Aristotle and Aquinas on the virtue of magnanimity, greatness yes. of soul, and uh, yeah. And now now there's been quite a bit more published work. But when I was working on that in an article version that later was became the cha- book chapter. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot out there, so it was at least in English. Um, there there wasn't much there, and in political theory. So, 
so as I as I explored that one, uh, what really what really jumped out at me was that Aquinas has claimed that magnanimity has a twin virtue or is part of a single twofold virtue, duplex virtus, and and his Latin uh, with a, a very counterintuitive co-virtue, which is humility. Mm-hmm. So that uh, no essentially. Uh, no virtuous humility, no virtuous magnanimity, <laughs> um, or fully virtuous magnanimity. No, no. At least the seeds of magnanimity are necessary for really virtuous humility. Uh, so for humility that isn't just smallness of soul or um, somehow, um, yeah, somehow a debilitated, a, a trait that's not fully virtuous, not fully enabling and perfecting uh, of of a person and his or her acts. So I found that really compelling um, and thought-provoking and compelling. And so when I when I finished the Aquinas book, I've been thinking about my next project. I thought, well, two things were on my mind, especially friendship in politics and humility in politics. And I thought, well, again, there's not a lot on humility at the time. So, and somehow that's that's drawing me more. So I'll I'll go that route. And what I initially thought I would do would, was jump right into working on the modern, some of the early modern thinkers on humility and pride and politics. Uh, just wanting to know, well, if I found Aquinas's general theory really compelling and very, very um, healthy for political life, this idea that greatness and humility, greatness of soul and humility go together, that they're, they're a pair uh, and that we need to think about them together. Uh, then I thought, well, well, this is this is great, but why are there so many modern critics of humility? Like, why this wasn't very persuasive to a lot of people? Um, Hume, Spinoza, Nietzsche, just to name a few. So I like, I'd like to know why. Like, what what's going on here? How does humility get transformed? How is it understood? Um, and how can that that lens of humility and pride give us a window into early modern? political projects and their diversity, knowing that they're not identical. So by a long shot. So uh, so I, I started going down that route. And what I what I found pretty quickly was how many uh, at least two very important early modern uh, scholars of early modern political thought who write on humility and pride, they begin from Augustine. There, there are histories of the early modern period, like in their in their introduction or their first chapter, it's the city of God. That's their go-to text. And that this is somehow setting up both like the subject matter and certain problems or questions that early modern thinkers are going to try to resolve. And, and um, that plus a research project I got invited by a, a wonderful working group from University of Helsinki's International Law uh, Division. Uh, anyway, so that that uh, was sort of a side project, but also very helpful. It was on uh, the Augustan city of God and its impact on some of the Salamanca school jurisprudence. Okay. Uh, and what that where I, what I learned the most from that was very helpful for me was also just seeing how significant the city of God was, you know, and looking at its its. Um, Erasmus is an uh, opera, Omnia of Augustine, Vives Commentary, you know, Thomas More gave lectures on it. Um, it, was, it was being read by, in, in part or in whole, by, by all sorts of thinkers across different schools in Europe. And so, uh, so again, at that point, I, I was looking at the accounts of humility in Augustine's politics, 
And they tended to be very narrowly focused on especially book 14 of the city of God. Um, So, which is not a bad choice, right? If you're going to pick a a manageable text, there's so much on pride. The original sin is is superbia for Augustine and and its deepest root and uh, superbia or vicious pride. And uh, the foil of that is humilitas or virtuous humility. And so, uh, but I, I was finding that that probably from that very narrow focus and from some of Augustine's rhetoric there, the ver- the visions of humility that these very good scholars were giving seemed um, yeah too partial and possibly misleading. So Augustine's humility might be characterized in, in one instance as sort of anti-human agency, anti-human initiative. Uh, we have to choose human initiative or God's initiative. And choosing God's initiative is humility. Choosing human initiative is pride. We need to choose between um, uh, Christians who are humble and pagans who are proud. You know, with kind of nothing yeah. in the middle. And uh, that's you know, kind of in a nutshell. It's too. Um, it, it's too. It's not quite nuanced enough even for these works. But that's basically the the takeaway. And the problem that that one work was was setting up. Another another work uh, would gave a rather sort of fideistic account of of Augustine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Augustine's not in favor of the Stoics and their their version of sort of healthy self sufficiency because he's a Christian and Scripture teaches us that that's pride, that's proudful, and we can't mm-hmm. go there. So um, even while this scholar was also acknowledging there's a philosophic aspect of Augustine's critique that wasn't really brought out or developed. And uh, again, understandably, they're just giving little snapshots of how they understand Augustine and then how that sort of propels at or engages the modern political project in different forms. So I thought, well, there's so much more. I knew enough about the city of God to know that there was having studied, studied and taught it at the grad level at this point that, well, there's so much more there. And I didn't, yeah, the, there um, there didn't seem to be a book out there that really gave a, a compelling account or at least a fuller account of Augustine's City of God, which begins in the in the in the uh, prologue, as as you're well aware, with uh, basically saying, well, a big part of this project is persuading the proud of the greatness of humility or how excellent or powerful this this thing called humility really is. Uh, and I found that, that that line of argument went through all the way through the city of God. So I spent many years actually um, just trying to reflect on it and write a series of essays on each portion of the city of God from from that um, that specific goal of Augustine's defending humility yeah. and its excellence. Well, that's cool. I didn't realize you'd sort of done this over a long period, tracing each part. Because I, I was looking today at the structure of the book, and I thought, like, it's a very bold, it seems obvious, but a very bold structure to just come out and say, I'm going to work through it chunk by chunk by chunk by chunk, and not trying to jump around thematically, but looking at every little uh, sort of portion of the text. So, yeah, that's that's really cool. Let me ask you before we get into the book, and I've got lots of questions from the book, but... What is it like to come to Augustine in the world of political science? It's a foreign world to me. Uh, I'm I'm ethics and maybe theology looking into 
uh, to politics tangentially. So what's it like to sort of come from the other side, being in the world of political science? Like you said, these were books that maybe start with the city of God, but are not theological by nature, are not engaging deeply with Augustine or his world, but just sort of this text. So what is sort of the reads that you get? Um, you mentioned those two. How do you approach it in your work doing political science with Augustine? Yeah, I think so. My my approach to political theory is very you know close reading of texts, um, interpretive, uh, and obviously bringing our our own like realities and our own questions from and problems from and opportunities right from contemporary political life and social life to that reading, but also trying to engage the works on their on their own. Um, and so I think, well, one thing Augustine somehow, he, he seems always relevant in some way, or it just, uh, in, in some way, well, that's, I think your question's really great, and I'm I, um, trying to think how best to approach it. So on, on one level, Aquinas is easier to work with in political theory, uh, just because his his argument style is rel- it's quite clear in many ways, you know, you, at least working in the Summa, you have the I answer that, you know, you have the yeah. here's what I think, and um, there there isn't a lot of rhetoric. I mean, he's, he's obviously he has his own style, and he he would like to to give an, a persuasive account of the answers he thinks hold true, but there's it's it's more a sort of it seems more scientific uh, in some ways in, in, its, in its structure, and that can appeal to political theorists or people in political science, at least as like someone who you take seriously um, as and the philosophic dimensions of his thought, whether you agree or, or you don't. Um, I think with Augustine, I think that he is, obviously, he's, the, he's defending the city of God, right? And, and the, it's uh, the sort of community um, that loves God more, that's loving God more than, uh, rather than self, or more than self, as, as you point out. And um, so it's so thoroughly and clearly religious that it's, it can be a more difficult sell in some, some um, aspects of political science. That being said, Augustine is maybe I'd say probably even more influential than than Aquinas in political theory broadly. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, I, I at least he always he seems to come back like and different. Uh, I, I I hesitate a bit in that comparison, but I at least at this at least at this moment in political <laughs> science, I think that that is that's the state of affairs. Uh, he. So you have people like Hannah Arendt who write their mm-hmm. dissertation on on Augustine, who uh, develop certain concepts in dialogue or with Augustine or critique of Augustine. Uh, you have um, you have uh, thinkers like Bill Conley or um, uh, Sheldon Wolin, who like they they look they they somehow there's something in Augustine that's that's appealing or or perplexing or somehow there's a hook there and that they want to be in dialogue with him um, and so they may take the text more or less seriously on its own they may focus on specific concepts but there's there's something about Augustine as a thinker and um, you know I, I think uh, so 
in some ways, it's it's not a hard sell that Augustine matters and that Augustine's interesting. That's really good to hear. I'm always curious how Augustine is received in circles that are not strictly theological. Like I said, I'm working primarily in philosophy and ethics, so there is a lot on Augustine, but it's often in a sort of Catholic ethics, still theology uh, but maybe more some of the deeper influences coming from Augustine. That's yeah. fascinating, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that has its goods and bads, because sometimes you get sort of only Augustine vis-a-vis Aquinas. Uh, mm-hmm. And I will say, this book, I was a little skeptical, because I had read your Aquinas book, and I was like, this is going to be another Thomistic read of Augustine. And I did not feel that way reading the book. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, it felt like a... A very genuine read of Augustine, because um, I'm used to a lot of analytic philosophy, and often the analytic philosophy sort of, if they take a medieval turn, it's it's usually a, a turn to Thomas first, and then in reading Thomas, they're like, oh, maybe we'll read Augustine, but we get a sort of Thomistic Augustine. So it's the same way, but I I feel like some of the stronger undertones and tides come from Augustinian thought more directly. So yeah, that's helpful. That's, just interesting. I need to talk to more atheists in general to figure out how our or agnostics or people who are not um, teaching at Notre Dame to figure out what is what is Augustine outside of theological commitments. Um, I'm sure there's a thousand scholars that would tell me there's nothing, but yeah, yeah. that's very interesting. Very similar themes to mm-hmm. the sort of philosophy. That's great. Good. Yeah. Um, well, tell me specifically about this work, Pride, Politics, and Humility. You've sort of given the, the lead up to it. You make a comment on page seven, and I I didn't really believe it at first. You said, to the best of my knowledge, no book-length study of the city of God has focused on its events of humility against pride. And I just wrote in the, the margin, I said, this is unreal. Like, I don't. I don't believe that's possible. Uh, so is it just that there's a glaring gap in the literature? You've mentioned a bit more. So yeah, what was the book trying to do? Uh, so yeah, that the book the book was trying to recover um, a fuller account, as full as I could give, of of what Augustine is doing, how Augustine goes about what he claims he wants to do in the prologue, which is defend the city of God you know, in part at least, by defending virtuous humility, by defending the power or excellence, the virtus of of humility. Uh, And to recover that that account, and and along the way, what I I expected, and this is by and large what I did find, to give a more humanistic account uh, of not not exclusive of theology, it's a Christian humanism, but, but uh, of an account that focused that was very sensitive to Augustine's effort to be in genuine dialogue with non-Christian readers as well as Christian readers, believers and non-believers, and um, and to explore the question of uh, you know, the big question of was Christianity culpable for the fall of Rome, uh, or it's teetering. We now have uh, tottering on the on the brink of of, cl- of collapse in the West, at least when Augustine wrote this book. Uh, or and uh, yeah and and also defending humility against in a culture that 
while it didn't like sort of the pride of kings, definitely uh, like the pride of lording it over other nations or being the most powerful, the, the most dominant uh, empire or rule uh, in the world. So what I, what I thought I would find and what I, what I found was that so much of what Augustine is arguing um, has to do with healthy human agency. <laughs> uh, and um, and so uh, arguments from history about what happens when, when pride gets out of control, pride in the vicious sense, pride mm. in the sense of a desire to be superior to, to dominate, to... Um, and ultimately to to oppress or to distance oneself and apathy from others, so they can go different routes. Um, but that uh, that there were experiential, historical, philosophic um, arguments that aren't just window dressing. They're not just sort of trying to dress up the theology, but that that that. And I think this is another reason why Augustine is is. Um, He's kind of a go-to, and people people go back to him, or at least some readers from other schools and from other religions or no religion take him seriously, at least as posing important questions. Is is he he doesn't claim that these are easy. He often speaks of like dealing with these very great questions or these extreme, as you're I'm sure well aware these these most difficult questions, and he tries to probe them. And these deal with life, death. They're not just abstractions, you know, city of God, no, like happiness, misery, life, death, justice, uh, mercy, um, you know, just so many things that are compassion. I mean, these things that make up our everyday lives and, and our, our, our hopes and dreams as human beings in many ways. And I think he really, you see also, he's so interested in what are the, what are the, how do we get a real dialogue going? Like, how do we, how do we set up several sections of the city of God where he, and I think of one in particular where he just goes right at it. How, how do we, how do we have a dialogue where people really listen to one another and seek, seek truth together? Um, so I think those are really why I wanted to just, I just take it step by step, you know, not, not try to abstract and do a conceptual reading, which would also, which could also be terrific. Like, Humility and justice, humility and mercy, humility and human humanity, yeah. humility and the divine. But just uh, to read slowly, reflect on, and draw out like he's made it clear this is a goal in the whole work. How how do we see that that aspect of Augustine's project? You know, and obviously sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes I'm making inferences from things that mm-hmm. aren't about humility or pride, and the reader can find those more or less persuasive that those are. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. I was talking to Michael Dulaski, uh a couple weeks ago, and he did his thesis, his doctoral thesis on rhetoric uh, in the homilies. But he made this comment just sort of off the cuff that like even Augustine's most theoretical works are sort of always written from the pulpit. Like, and I thought that was a good way of, of wrapping up of there's a very... Um, relatable way in that he's looking at those who don't agree with him and those who kind of agree with him and those who are on board. And there's many levels of dialogue going on. Um, and in his sermons, you know, he'll stop and he'll say, I'm talking to, to catechumens who don't believe. And over here he'll say, I'm talking to, you know, the monks in my monastery who are dealing with different things. 
But I think reading that does come through in the city of God, and you sort of draw it out that he's appealing to pagans at times, and he's appealing to Christians at times, and you've got these these multiple layers. You had mentioned, just talking about Augustine political thought, but there's um, a lot more rhetoric going on, and you mentioned rhetoric in the book. Tell me more about that. Where do you see rhetoric coming out? Um, as you know, Veronica talks about rhetoric pretty extensively in her book. Um, but what made you pick up on that, and, and where do you see rhetoric in sort of the the different moves Augustine makes in the city of God? Mm-hmm. So I see um, I see rhetoric throughout because he's trying to persuade. So in in that sense, uh, he makes it quite clear, like his goal is it's persuading people to to uh, seek citizenship in the city of God, persuading people of the excellence of humility, persuading, you know, and he knows that it's a hard sell, that he has difficult task ahead of him. So I see the whole work as sometimes it's described as theological, sometimes it's descri- the city of God, that is, um, the whole work as theological, sometimes it's described as polemical. And mm-hmm. obviously, in some ways, especially the theological, that's certainly true that there's, it's it's polemical in, 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 a, in a sense that Augustine can be sort of on a soapbox or, you know, at certain yeah. times. That's... Um, but but I think a better way of looking at it is uh, at least for me what this this was what I came to as sort of the key. I know Veronica Roberts Ogle does a beautiful job in in focusing on the sacramentality of of Augustine's language and his his view of the world, um, and I think that that's quite important. Um, I also think though that at the same time you can look at it as a whole, his, his approach or his method is what I call rhetorical dialectic. Okay. Uh, or you could also flip that and call it dialectical rhetoric. So mm-hmm. rhetoric in that the whole work is aiming at persuasion. It's, he's quite clear about that. Um, and, uh, and for Augustine, though, persuasion, is, rhetoric is only true to itself when it's, it's, a, it's a ethos, uh, it's uh, its emotional aspects are geared towards finding and and communicating truth, so teaching, yeah. right? So and with that teaching, I I see his uh, his writing also as a form of what the classical thinkers would call dialectic. So maybe Aristotle's or Cicero's, some some form similar to that, where uh, it's an inquiry, shared inquiry that doesn't begin right away from sort of print basic principles of a science, or but it, it begins from shared, um, either shared principle or shared opinion, shared some sort of um, common ground that one can begin from, and that one then raises questions and and probes and and tries to uh, to move. Uh, as an interlocutor closer to truth with one's interlocutors. So I see it as, as in a broad sense, philosophic and rhetorical uh, and in a, a, melded, uh, a melded form. And, and for Augustine, of course, like philosophy opens up to and, and um, truest philosophy is, is true religion, right, at the end of the day. But it, it's an inquiry that needs to begin from shared perceptions, whether and in some cases, they're shared in a culture or 
Um, they could, as you, you know, you mentioned that his sermons could be shared among the monks, could be shared among the, um, the regular church going already baptized Christians could be shared among the catechumens, uh, or the broader culture. But in the city of God, it, it, you know, it could be things shared among educated Romans, things mm. shared among Romans period, things that broadly construed things, uh, shared among Christians, uh, things shared among people with a liberal arts education, whether they be pagan or Christian, uh, or things, opinions common in a particular philosophic school. So shared, you know, sort of in broad strokes, basic um, starting points for Platonic philosophers in Augustine's era and and the few centuries before. So, uh, yeah, so I think... um, and, th- and then the rhetoric is, he's not just giving a philosophy class or a theology class, he's, he's engaging in a persuasive enterprise. So it's, it's aiming uh, to elicit emotion, to, um, to bring the reader along, to choose, to choose an, an approach that's going to be appealing or shocking or thought-provoking, but in some way that's going to um, engage the broad scope of readers that I think he's, he's hoping to have. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely engaging. Um, and I like you You take a minute in the book to sort of draw out in his mature reflections on rhetoric. Rhetoric is for the pursuit of the truth, right? There's no uh, sort of detached persuasion, but it's always persuasion to the truth. And anything else should take a backseat to that. And I think that's, that's very helpful to note. Uh, yeah. Tell me more broadly how you talk about politics and um, yeah, well, just where do you see Augustine fitting into politics? I know there's all sorts of critiques of, oh, he doesn't do politics or um, he's only doing theology or he's only doing philosophy. So how do you take the book politically as a whole that is the city of God? Um, And how do you take sort of his political vision? It's a small question. Yeah, it's a small question, but a good, a great one. Yeah. Uh, so I think just looking at the book in its in its outline, there are certain sections. So uh, typically, I think at least in the political theory courses that I'm I'm more familiar with, or colleagues who've mentioned what they what they teach of Augustine, say if they do, but in an intro class or an advanced political theory class uh, in the city from the City of God books one through five typically um, come into play. And also book 19, yeah. um, and and that those again those are those are those are great starting points. So I think Augustine begins the City of God from both an analysis of the of the, the sort of critical and very difficult moment that Rome is at, and, and Rome broadly construed, right? The empire um, is is at after the sack of Rome, um, and he he reflects on dimensions of uh, of war and peace in that in that uh, situation on uh, citizens' ability or lack thereof to comprehend and have compassion on one another to look at things justly um, uh, and from there he moves and uh, other things but in book one that's part of what's going on and then from there he moves to look at uh, Roman history. And, and he's mostly again showing this. Uh, well, he he begins from a lot from some of the Roman historians, the pre-Christian Roman historians. So, and Sallust is a big favorite, uh, yeah. and uh, but uh, he also quotes others, and also 
turns to more philosophic, maybe reflections like Cicero's on aspects of Rome's Republic and uh, the crisis during Cicero's lifetime. So, um, yeah, so those are those are clearly uh, clearly political. Um, and then in book 19, he, that's where he has his, as I know you're well aware, but maybe some listeners haven't read The City yeah. of God yet. So in, in book 19, Augustine focuses on the question, again, debating uh, with philosophy, with, from within a philosophic school, looking at uh, candidates for what happiness or the ultimate end for human beings would could possibly be. And he, he emphasizes that he he agrees with those who say that the happy life is social, right? There's something very important to him. He's like, well, we can certainly find a lot to, to agree with, or this is closer to our view, that the happy life is a social one. Uh, and then he gives his famous argument that peace is the ultimate end of human life and, and is uh, eternal life in peace or peace in eternal life would be what, what we're most aiming for. And that one important, uh, another important form of peace, though, is temporal peace. You could say the, the mm -hmm. peace that's attainable in, in large part through political life. Uh, and that, um, and uh, it's not a perfect peace. It's, it's a very, it can be a very fragile peace. It can be a better or worse peace, a more or less just peace, never perfectly just. I think Augustine thinks in in our in our world, only in the city of God's fulfillment, will we have perfect justice and perfect peace. But um, there, he's he's also wrestling with some some key questions for politics. And then there are other sections of the book uh, that have have a political. Um, you could say focus as well. So uh, two that come to mind are uh, books six and seven, which are the books right after the Roman history and political, you know, political drama of, of the first five books. He turns towards natural theology uh, and Platonic philosophy and his bridge between those two, the, the politics and the Platonic natural theology is Roman civil religion as interpreted by philosophic intellectuals. And especially uh, Marcus Varro takes center stage and, and in a briefer but still significant uh, mode, uh, Seneca. Those yeah. are his. And, and so there he's dealing with politics use of religion, <laughs> right? And, and the interrelation between religion and politics in, um, in ancient Rome and in attempts to sort of revise and shore up the mos maiorum, the the uh, the you could say tradition or mores of the, of the ancients or the forefathers, and uh, to uh, to reinvigorate Roman uh, piety in that regard, that will also help Roman and especially help Roman politics. <laughs> so Augustine is uh, sympathetic to aspects of that project and and pretty critical of of other aspects, and particularly the way that that uh, that the philosophic intellectuals, and later some of the Platonic philosophers, he thinks, uh, later Platonic philosophers, uh, treat the common people as not capable of understanding truth and therefore as manipulable and uh, easily oppressed. Um, and so he's, uh, he's that, I think that section has a, and, and really his whole dialogue with the philosophers still has, has political concerns um, interwoven. Uh, and, and then last, uh, one last, um, another another book, I think it's book 18, but it's it's in the history books. It's 
been a, a little while since I've looked at it. It's probably, I think it's, I think it's book 18. Uh, there, Augustine's just dealt with, uh, you could say, sacred history, the biblical histories. And then he steps back and takes a look at, well, what was happening in, in the world outside of Israel, you know, mm-hmm. during <laughs> during this, these periods, as far as we can ascertain from the very limited records we've got, but let's take a look. And, um, and he there, yeah, he sort of the comments on, you know, and, and sometimes as rhetoric can be a little jabbing or a little jarring, but often it's quite sympathetic. Um, but looking at the, you know, the the sufferings and the the political uh, problems that were being dealt with in in history in other ancient cultures, and then uh, then he he also shows how when things went better for a while, how there was a tendency. So it was say a, a leader. Um, in you know maybe mythic history, but still in say the Egyptian history or or Roman history or some of the Greek cities history, a, a ruler came along and like taught people how to write, you know, and, and encouraged letters and helped agriculture and and had a pretty peaceful reign. And yeah. so people get very excited and then they divinize, right? Then there's like okay, well let's worship this this figure, um, maybe hoping that the political benefits can be continued or and um, so there's there's uh, also showing how um, yeah how how there's this you can see like genuine human aspiration and how easily falsehood and and manipulation can can get interwoven. Uh, so that, I think there's this there's a lot in the whole work about politics, uh, not just in books one through five, which are kind of the go-to for that. Yeah, I think that's right, and that's something yeah. I really appreciated about how you laid out the book. Like I said, it's sort of daunting to lay it out because you're committing to say, I can say something about pride politics and humility in every part of the city of God. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Mary M. Keyes. If you like the show or want to find out more about her work, go buy her new book, Pride, Politics, and Humility in Augustine City of God. Also check out her first book, Aquinas, Aristotle, and the Promise of the Common Good. There's a link to both in the description. Check out her other articles and the work that she's doing at Notre Dame, and especially go check out the Cambridge Companion to Augustine City of God. There's lots of good stuff in there. As always, I hope you enjoyed the podcast.